Welcome everyone to another episode of the Nirushaku Gaming Podcast. This week I have another special guest. I guess you can introduce yourself. Sure. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm Nina. Uh, Nina Freeman. I'm a game developer and a streamer uh, based in Maryland in the US. Awesome. So I guess um, you can just give a brief... Like, uh, I Take me through your CV, I guess, for <laughs> sure, the listeners, sure. for the people who may not uh-huh. uh, be aware. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I have been working on games for, gosh, I think I tried to count recently, and it was like seven or eight years since I made my first game <laughs> back in like my early 20s. Wow. Um, so yeah, back in the day, I was making Flash games. So some of the early work that I think is like my best known is called How Do You Do It, um, which I made with a group of friends um, kind of like after college and before I started grad school. That's when I started to make games. Um, and it was really just for fun to do a fun thing with my friends. And we made How Do You Do It at a game jam, global game jam. Um, and it's a game where you play as me as a kid and I have these two Barbie dolls and you like bang, bang them together to sort of like, it's like <laughs> when I was a kid, I would use my Barbie dolls to be like, what's sex? And I would like mash them together like a silly kid. <laughs> and the game is yeah. about replicating that experience because I thought it was really funny. Um, so that's kind of like the early stuff that I was working on um, with my wonderful friends. And I did like design and code. So that's sort of like what I do when I work on games are those two things and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, uh, I made a lot of games at Game Jam, so that was early stuff for me. And then my first commercial release was Sybil, which is a game about um, playing an online game and having a relationship in an online game. Um, and it's actually like the last Flash game I made. <laughs> um, and that wow, game- that was Flash? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would never guess it, right? <laughs> No, <laughs> we were really good with Flash at that point, so we made it and kind of like made it seem like something else. But yeah, it is Flash, um, and that game did really well. And you know, I like writing about online games because I grew up playing Final Fantasy XI. Actually, that was like a huge part of my youth. So that game was all about that. And then now these days, I work in Unity, um, and the last game that I worked on was called Last Call, which I made with my spouse Jake which is about my experience, sadly, with domestic violence when I was younger. Um, And it's a game where you like use voice inputs to play. So that was really fun to make. Um, So as you can probably tell, most of my games are drawing on my personal life. Um, But I also worked as a level designer at Fulbright for a while. um, And I do contracting and freelancing on various games. So I do work on other people's games too. But I tend to have a focus on like making indie games with my friends or my husband, Jake. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do in more detail. <laughs> also streaming, which I can talk cool. about more if you want. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we'll get to this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like sort um, of separate, but the same. I don't know. They're two things I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can see how they're, I see how they're like, similar because like mm-hmm. it's all content creation at the end of the day right yeah like self-expression yeah yeah exactly and especially I'm... for someone like you who makes mm-hmm. like games based off of like personal experiences right exactly i think it is a lot of, there is a lot of overlap like on twitch you know i stream to support my game development but also i do it because i love performing like in sybil it's an fmv game which is a game with real video and i play myself in it and I like acted for it because I was a theater kid growing up. So I love that kind of thing. And Twitch <laughs> definitely fulfills that for me, um, even though I'm not like playing a character or anything, but it's still very performative. So yeah, in addition yeah. to all that game stuff, I stream to like support my work. Um, so yeah, it's fun. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So why like why games? Like what made you decide to like, what made you go, you know what, let me try game development? Yeah, um, I mentioned it briefly before, but I started in my early 20s. Um, I didn't, which was like 2013-ish. Um, I was actually an English literature student when I was in college for undergraduate. Um, I went to Pace University in New York City. It was awesome. I did poetry there. Um, and. You know, I thought I was going to go on to do that and like, I don't know, be an academic or be a teacher or something. Mm -hmm. But I was doing that and I just wasn't, I didn't know what to do. 
like I knew that I loved writing and I loved writing personal poetry and I had this like creative practice that I enjoyed but I didn't know how to like translate it into work um, and I was working this like data analyst job for a while to like make ends meet because New York's so expensive um, and that was after I graduated and during that time period I met a bunch of people who were working on games just as friends and um, I saw them making games and was like, whoa, this is so cool. Like when I was a kid, I liked to build websites. Like I was one of those Neopets kids who was like making their Neopets page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it evolved and I made lots of like fan sites, different animes and stuff when I was a kid. And that was like a huge part of my childhood was making websites. And so I saw game development as sort of nostalgic because I saw the coding and I was like, oh, I remember doing that when I was younger. Um, so it because my friends were doing it and I had that nostalgia for that technology, I started going with them to game jams and they were gracious enough to let me kind of like fumble my way through learning while working <laughs> on games with them. Um, so it really started as a hobby and then when How Do You Do It did super well and like got a lot of recognition, I was like, oh, maybe I could do this for real. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> And then I got like swept away into the whole scene, which was super active in New York at the time. Um, and I ended up at NYU for grad school because I met a bunch of people who were there through going to those game jams and like got involved. So I kind of used grad school as a way to like transition. I, you know, I got some like work study things or like um, internships that paid. So I was able to like go part time on my main job and like do both and transition, you know, my life into a new career. Um, so yeah, and then I haven't stopped since. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Like that's, that's cool that you, I guess, um, again, there are similarities. I, I never made websites. I'm terrible at coding, but I did have a blog. So I can see <laughs> oh, cool. how, um, I can see the overlap, I mm -hmm. guess. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't know if you were into this, but like fan sites and like fandom stuff in the 2000s, like I was really into games and anime when I was growing up. And I know those are two different things, but you know, like nerdy stuff, <laughs> at least of the time. Yeah, yeah. It's more mainstream now. But like, I grew up around that stuff. And it's funny because I consumed so much of it, but I never like thought about what it was like to work on it until I was an adult. It was just sort of a thing that I liked. And then when I got that taste of seeing someone actually making that stuff that I loved, I was like, how did I not think of this sooner? <laughs> like, this is what I've always yeah. loved, you know? It's true. It's, it, it's interesting because like I, and I wish, I wish I could find those papers. Like when I was younger, like in primary school, uh -huh. Uh, is that what they call it in the U.S.? Is it primary school? I think um, I would say elementary school, but I assume it's elementary. Like the same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, uh, when I was in, I guess in the United States version, elementary school, primary school, mm -hmm. I made uh, paper. They weren't board games. They were like it's hard to explain like uh -huh. mechanically they worked like a real video game and cool stuff. like I, I I created rules and mechanics mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So clearly, I've always like thought of game design but I never th I never thought I would be able to make games I've made some games uh, thanks to like I we host the global game jam cool so I've gotten a, a taste for that uh, and it's really hard it's <laughs> it is hard it's super super hard but it's it's very satisfying mm -hmm. and it's extremely collaborative like oh yeah I can't imagine what it's like to like work on a game alone I don't even Oof. think that's possible People like do it, uh, but I, I also like couldn't, I couldn't do it, but I know people do do it. I think Stardew Valley was actually one person, amazingly. Um, it's very yeah. rare, but you do hear those stories. <laughs> I never work I, alone. I, I always, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I love your story about making like the paper, paper games. I know that that, you know, that's even something used by people like paper prototyping is a totally legit thing that people do, I think, at like their jobs and stuff as game designers. Um, I know I've done it. <laughs> so it's awesome <laughs> that like as a kid, you actually like can uncover that skill, right? That really would translate into later in life without even really realizing it. I love that kind of thing. I think paper prototyping is super useful. Um, so yeah, I love that story. That's really cool. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So take me through like, uh... Like how how would you this 
or define or describe like what your uh, speciality is, I guess, in, mm-hmm. in game development? Sure. So it's weird for me. I think many like indie independent developers will say, I wear so many hats or whatever, which is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically when I'm working on a game, like I said earlier, I usually do design, some coding, uh, writing if it's needed. Um, and just like narrative design in general. Those are my interests, but also I did work as a level designer. So I have that skill as well. And level design is like, it's an interesting skill because it's really applicable beyond just 3D games. Like I I like to make this comparison. I don't know if you've played Sybil or if people listening have to describe a part of it. It's the game that I worked on that's about an online game romance and in it, you're using, you're playing as me on my like computer. So you have like sort of a a desktop that you explore, like you open the folders and look through pictures and files. And then you also play the online game in the story. But when you're in that desktop, I consider that level design where like, you know, in a typical 3D game level design would be like, okay, you're in this room, there are hallways over here, a doorway over here. The design of it is how it's all connected. In Sybil, the desktop is like, the main entryway is like the main part of the desktop. And then you go through the folders and those are like little hallways into different parts of the computer. And I used that to like bury certain things hidden under many, many folders that I thought, you know, should be more secretive. So I also like consider level design a really important skill, even just like whether it's 2D game, 3D game, whatever, you can think of ways to apply it anywhere. It's a bit more of an abstract skill. So I wanted to explain it in more detail, but. Yeah, the architecture of spaces, physical and digital. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the other stuff. And usually personal games. That's a, my other, like, specialty is semi-autobiographical stuff. I like how you put it as the architecture of spaces in games because, well, first of all, bias. I am an architect. Oh, but cool. Also, like, <laughs> I, 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 like, that kind of makes it make sense because as an architect, you are... First and foremost, you are a very artsy fartsy artist. <laughs> like you're imagining spaces and you're you're kind of guiding people through you know, like when I'm designing something for someone, um, sometimes they'll laugh because I'm like, I'm imagining you walking into the mm-hmm. the house and the first thing you do is like like are you left handed or right handed? Because that's where I'm gonna put the switch. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, do you carry lots of bags Uh i can put do you wear lots of coats do you wear lots of hats like i'm thinking about your experience as you move through the space yeah and i want to create a an atmosphere or a mood i'm also taking note of your personality and i also ask some personal questions like do you want to have kids Mm -hmm. do you get many guests over like that all um all those elements are what define my uh design choices so I can see now that you said that it's kind of like unlocked yeah. <laughs> a part of my brain to be like, that's okay, awesome. so that's kind of what level design is. Mm-hmm. I guess it's like, uh, I guess guiding or um, I guess imagining what a player will experience mm-hmm. through the game. Yeah, that is, that is exactly. I hope I didn't just babble and just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're like totally on point And I think architects and level designers have like so much in common and actually there's some good gdc talks i forget her name but there's this lady who's an architect who's given a bunch of talks about like the intersection of architecture and level design at gdc if you want to look that up i think in the level design summit for people's reference um anyway yeah it's something everything you said totally tracks with how i think about game spaces like I said, whether it's literally rooms or like the design of a, a, a desktop, um, I'm always thinking about how the player is going to approach it. What I I try to like, you know, like you were describing, predict how they're going to use it and design it to support that. Or maybe sometimes to like convince them to interact with it in a different way through its design. Um, like how I like to hide secrets in the desktop, that kind of thing. So yeah, everything you said totally applies. Um, it's just funny that like, cause as an architect, you have the physical constraints too. Whereas like for digital games, I don't have to worry about that as much, <laughs> obviously. So like yeah. we have similar approaches, just different constraints, I think. 
Um, my constraints would be like the technology and the game mechanics, whereas I assume yours would be like the physical constraints of like gravity <laughs> and like yeah. materials. <laughs> And money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Which games also yeah, have to, but I... like in a different way, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, compare the level design of like The Last of Us to something I work on. It's going to be pretty different. <laughs> I mean, because also part of level design, like depending, it depends all on the kind of game you're making, right? So like I, my level design approach for like a third person 3D game would be super different from like a uh, studio of the scale that makes Last of Us because I can't, I'm not ever going to make a game that big, you know, like as someone self-funding and just like me and usually my husband, like two person team, we really like to focus on smaller games, smaller spaces. Also just as like a person, I'm more interested in games that are really concise, small, short games. I just like that. Um, so like creatively also my interest is more in making a small space that's like as dense as possible with like an experience rather than like a sprawling kind of thing and both are good it's just that like as a creator i'm more into like making that and building that small stuff both out of creative interest and out of like yeah budget constraint and just time because <laughs> this stuff all takes time too and like there's only so much time i want to dedicate to one project so i'm all about small stuff <laughs> <laughs> no, that's 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 very valid. I I also prefer shorter game. Um, my sweet spot personally is like ten, twelve hours. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I like those even if it's like a big AAA game. And it's funny, mm -hmm. like I'm saying ten, twelve hours as if that's like <laughs> that was like the norm in the PS3 era. Like that yeah, was yeah. how long most games were. And now it's like, oh my gosh, this indie game is too short for ten like ten hours. I know. Right. Our standards yeah. have evolved yeah. so much. And like, I'm even into the more extreme stuff. Like, how do you do it? We made, I think it takes, if you play it really fast, it takes, or actually, no, it literally takes one minute to play. There's like a timer on it. And I'm pretty sure it's one minute long. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. But uh, I remember like when we did that, there was people who were mad at me about it. And I was like, what do you, it's just, a, it's just a game. Like, <laughs> they were like offended that I was, that we made it one minute and I was like, well, that's how long it took to tell the story. So I'm not gonna like stretch it yeah. out for no reason. Um, and I thought, cause that was really early in my career. I remember being confused why people were annoyed. Now I have seen enough to not be surprised. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, budget constraints really do affect like the scale of our games. And I think when I want to find really extremely small ones, I'll like look on itch.io for the more experimental stuff because that those short minute games are out there and they're so interesting. I love to see all extremes of what games can be like. The super big ones and the super small ones are both so cool. Like it's awesome that both can exist, you know? Yep, yep, that's true. Okay, so take me through like the process of like making, like being a level designer on say a mid-dish, budget game right? mm -hmm. like how like what like what is it the level design that comes first is it the mechanics is it the narrative like um because i'm trying to think like let's say i'm trying to tell a story uh -huh. so i'll figure out what the space the scene the scenery right uh -huh. is, i guess i'll say it's in a castle whatever right so then now does that mean okay now that we know it's in a castle does the do the characters come first so that you know where to place the characters in the space like how does that work so i think it it definitely depends on the kind of game you're making so i'll try to give like two examples one you know when i worked at fulbright that was like mid-sized kind of game stuff which, which was worked on a bigger by <laughs> worked on by a bigger team whoa i couldn't say that uh and for that game there was you know, a story sort of loosely known up front, and we knew like the setting of the game that it was going to take place on a space station. I worked on Tacoma there, um, which is, yeah, a game set on a space station, uh, a small one. So, you know, given that loose context, the story wasn't completely written when I started working on the level design for that game. It was just sort of like coming together. So for us, the story and the space evolved simultaneously. And so given the setting and I knew the characters' jobs um, and I knew the purpose of the spaceship. So 
I basically took those things into account. Um, so I designed the administrative wing, for example, and I knew there was two, oh God, I can't remember, one or two people that lived there. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start with like where their um, personal quarters are. And so I would like build that. And then I was like, where would they be used? Like, how would they actually use the space? Oh, she would have to get to her office and there's a conference room over here that would probably be attached to the office with a window between. And then like, oh, because it's administration, like there's probably gonna be like the eating, the dining room and like all this other kind of like daily life people stuff. So I laid out the space based on, you know, the person's personal quarters would be kind of tucked away so that not everyone is like <laughs> bothering the person while they're sleeping. So I'm gonna put that behind a couple hallways. Um, but the public spaces like the dining room are gonna be really close to the entrance because that's where a lot of people are gonna go. So I thought very much about like literally how I thought like if I was those people in real life, how I would want the space to be designed. Um, so it was a very like utilitarian approach, I think, or like a realist yeah. approach. Um, and not that I'm like a spaceship designer, but it was like honestly inspired more by like real world spaces and then like projected onto this sci-fi setting. Um, so yeah, I was working on it in that way. And then the story and the things that happened in that space kind of evolved along with it. So then the writers would be like, oh, okay, this room seems like an interesting space to like, have a pool table and we'll have this like conversation happen while they're playing pool. We're gonna write that scene now. So it was very much like a, a back and forth where like I was making the space based on what they were telling me. And then they would look at the space and come up with ideas for it that fit into the larger story. So yeah, that was kind of the process for that game. But like I said before, it's gonna be super different for like every studio. I think that's one good approach is a collaborative back and forth. Um, but for something like Sybil, for example, it was just really, it was a tiny team and I was writing and designing. So I actually had the story written first in its entirety. And then I designed the levels using that and like telling specific moments of the story. So that worked out really well too, that I like had everything I knew I needed to work with. Um, but that's a very different approach from like being inspired by so each other between teams and i think yeah. both approaches are good but yeah it just depends what you need so like with sybil did you know before while you were writing you were like you knew like okay the player is going to be looking at a desktop and then they will be launching the game like did you know that beforehand or did <laughs> that come up when you were like maybe uh, maybe they should launch it or maybe or was there any point where the game was always in the uh in the final fantasy 11 world yeah <laughs> so actually for sybil the process was the original idea for the game happened when i was in grad graduate school in a prototyping class like a studio kind of thing where we were all making prototypes every week and i made a prototype that was basically just the online game part where you're like playing as a character and reading chat logs and stuff um and it was just that with some voiceover, like you're overhearing a Discord conversation kind of thing. That's like the online game part of Sybil. And so I prototyped that part. And then my professor, Bennett, Bennett Foddy, who is like, oh my God, one of my idols. He's amazing. Uh, super lucky to have been a student. He said, oh, this is really interesting. You should run with it. And so I was like, really? <laughs> and then I took that prototype and said, you know, how can I build this into something that tells the full story of my experience in this online game relationship. And then from there, I did more prototyping without writing anything where I just like, we developed the idea for the desktop and like how much of the online game you were going to explore. So like that game design part actually came first, like the prototype iteration. And then once we had a pretty good idea of how that would work generally, I spent three nights at a bar <laughs> and I got a glass of wine and I drank and wrote. <laughs> I wrote the whole game in three days. <laughs> um, so that's how that game happened. <laughs> and then we built it from there. There was still a lot of iteration, but I find it funny that I wrote it all in three days. Much editing after, but... <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> Release the raw cut. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I wonder if I even have the first draft. It's probably like on my old laptop somewhere. I do save like everything like that, but um, yeah, I edited it a lot from that first version. But Sybil was a funny game because yeah, it was all about that initial prototype, and then like. It was such a weird, you know, personal like relationship story to tell that I really just wanted to write it down all at once and not worry about it <laughs> anymore. So that that approach worked out. Um, and while I was writing it, I was able to imagine the game like you were describing because we had already done all that prototyping. Um, so yeah, that that had helped a lot. That's awesome. That's um, so how like um, as a level designer. Because I, I know that there are cuts made in games. Is it usually you who makes the decision to be like, like when you're, I guess, finishing up or whatever, like, mm -hmm. oh, this isn't going to work out, let me cut it. Or if your level has been cut by someone else, how do you reconcile <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> with that? Because, like, I've watched so many, like, talks where someone's like, we had this whole level mm -hmm. and it's just cut. And, like, goodness me, like, that's wild to me. Yeah, I think that's that's a really, you know, common practice in game development, um, for sure. And it's and it's never easy. Like at Fulbright, when we were working on Tacoma, we actually had like a full, probably hours worth of the game built that we worked on for like a year. And mechanically, it just wasn't working and we didn't like it. And so we, it wasn't my decision, but I supported it that we canned the whole thing. We, we cut that whole like, first year of work but like the editor work right so the ideas and the story and the the things we learned from that first version really informed what the game ultimately became so usually I try to think of it that way like if something gets cut we usually learned something from it like it's a bummer if it happens at the end of a project and you don't really get to use that knowledge but if it happens early enough you usually can take stuff from that whether it's ideas or literally like assets that were made for it that you can repurpose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like that kind of thing can be really good. Um, in my personal work, I like with Sybil actually, we built a much bigger online game portion for the game that we were working on it. We were like, what, this is gonna take us like five years to build. Like this isn't gonna happen. <laughs> So we cut a lot of our ideas to shorten how long we had to work on the game. Because I was like, well, it's going to take us forever and the story really doesn't need to be told in this grandiose way. Like I can make it more concise and that's going to be a better way to tell the story anyway. So yeah, we did cut a lot of, out of that game early on. Thankfully that was before I wrote like the script. Um, but yeah, I think it's really important to be open to cutting stuff um because players will notice if your game is like bloated or has extra stuff or like fillery stuff it's not good for the experience i think so you know it's an important skill to uh to hone in on for sure uh, yeah i i fully fully agree so like in general what what skill sets um or what would what advice would you give to say someone who would like to be a level designer well, how do you even know that you have the, the skill to be mm -hmm. a level designer because recently i saw a, a, th a thread on twitter where um you might have seen this there was this whole discourse about what game design actually is and people not really understanding what it is so like how do you even um like how do you know that you have a knack for that mm -hmm. how do you begin to do that yeah, it's a it's a funny question for me because I kind of like fell stumbled into level design. I never like planned on doing it. When I was working on Sybil, I didn't even know the term. <laughs> like <laughs> I was doing level design without realizing it. Because, um, you know, I didn't uh, when I was working on Sybil, that was pretty early in my career. And, you know, I was in school and stuff, but I wasn't I didn't like know all the industry terminology and stuff yet. Um, so I was just kind of like following my heart and taking my friends and my teacher's advice without knowing all the terms really. Um, so I think it's definitely something you can do without realizing it because level design really is like we were talking about earlier, like the architecture of a space, designing the space of your game, whatever that space may be. Um, which I think is just, 
Again, it depends on the kind of game you're making, but um, I guess I would say like if you want to test your ability to do it more deliberately than I did, like how I just was kind of doing it by mistake because I was building that desktop and that was level design. <laughs> and I really built it because it was, you know, a part of that experience in the story. Like it was just the yeah. story required level design by what it involved, which was exploring a desktop. If you want to do a more deliberate experiment with it, as a working level designer, I'm always paper mapping. So I'll take like, I'll have a space that I want to design for a game, say someone's house, a character's house or their apartment. I'll get a piece of graph paper or open Photoshop or whatever. I prefer graph paper and pencil. Um, and I'll just draw the layout of the space. Like you would as an architect, like you would draw a blueprint or something. Um, and I would draw that space and you know, mark where does the player start, mark the narrative things that happen in the space or the mechanics, like label it all and, you know, iterate on that and think about what it would be like to walk through that space. Like if it's a first person game or a third person game, really draw the space in 2D and just imagine it in whatever format you think would suit your game. And then if you have the ability, take that paper map and what I would do is I would gray block it. So I would open Unity, use Pro Builder, which is a tool that's built in. Um, it's free, I think. Uh, and it's kind of like clay in Unity. It's like these little gray boxes yeah. you can, you know, shape. And I would take that paper map and put it next to my computer, put it up on the wall and start building it, you know, build the 3D version of it. Um, and see if the way you marked it up and the way you imagined it translates to 3D, if that's the kind of game you want to make. Um, so that that's like my process as a level designer and what I would do for work. Um, but I think it's also like a fun exercise to do just like if you want to learn about what it's like to do that kind of thing. Paper mapping and gray blocking are like the staples of especially 3D level design. Um, or you could even build it in Legos. I don't know. Like, there's so many ways to experiment with building a little space. Um, and I'm sure you even have good strategies for that as an architect. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we learn in school to use, like, um, paper, cardboard, yeah. um, little models. Mm -hmm. uh, and that helps you. Uh, it helps you visualize it in actual 3D. Like, you can do 3D on a computer, but it's still, I don't know, It's it's not tactile yeah it's still digital you know but like with uh, a model you can like put a flashlight on it and see what will happen like visually shadow wise with, yeah you know and all that stuff. i love like, that obviously you can yeah obviously you can still do that digitally but i don't know is there something about the tactile <laughs> well lighting having a model lighting is one of the like hardest things to do in game development especially like hyper realistic lighting it's like i i can't do it i make jake do it because <laughs> he's a tech artist <laughs> i can't i can't do it but like i have to imagine it as a level designer because lighting a space is also level design you know like when you play these games like you know the last of us or even a smaller game and you're walking through a space you'll notice that they light the path or they might use lights yeah. to like misdirect you and get you to go to a dangerous place because it's exciting yep you know like light as you see it really draws you towards a, uh, a space and as i'm sure you know as an architect so like i love that you mentioned the lighting because it is such a powerful tool and it is really hard to do in unity and stuff if you're newer so i really like the idea of being able to physically do it in the real world <laughs> that's so cool that reminds me of like one of the first, like, oh man, years ago, we were prototyping a game in uh, Constructs 2, and it was a stealth game. And I really wanted to mess around with like light and shadows. Mm -hmm. So I really want, like, I wanted, like, um, say, like a lamp to like be um, oscillating, mm -hmm. and uh, there's like a light there and there's shadow and stuff. And it absolutely crushed the PC. Like yeah. it just <laughs> yeah. it was just too deep, but it like just so much light stuff. Just it, I we didn't know what was going on and we just had to scrap it because it's like man. And then later on we discovered it's like this could have all been solved with like ray tracing technology. Like because we really did want it to be like bouncing around uh -huh. and stuff. So yeah, I guess we're a bit ahead of our time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe the or maybe the, the, the construct who couldn't handle it, I don't know, but yeah, it, it, uh, 
didn't work out. Yeah, I think that that stuff's just hard in general. And like, you know, but you can come up with creative ways around it. Like if you don't have the ability to use fancy lighting in your game, maybe you can draw it into the textures or something and have it just exist in your art. Like there's always going to be ways to cut corners or like get around your uh, constraints or weaknesses or whatever. Um, and I'm always aware of that because like, you know, I've said before, I do design, writing, coding. I don't do all the coding myself though because there's certain parts of programming that I just don't know as well, like the tech art stuff, like shaders and, and whatnot. So to compensate for that, I work with Jake who's good at it. But if I didn't have him to work with, which I don't always, um, like this, uh, gosh, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think back. Uh, oh, Mangia is a game I worked on by myself. And it was a twine game because that was easy enough to make myself. I knew twine really well. I didn't really need to like do any fancy tech art. It's just like literally using that tool. Or freshman year, I didn't, I coded all of that by myself. And I, so I was like, okay, it's going to basically just be like a visual novel type thing. Cause I know how to program that. That's easy for me. Um, but yeah, then if I want to do something fancier, I know I need to like search for collaborators who uh, make up for my weaknesses <laughs> or who can really bring their own voice to the project is really like what I mean. Um, Cause like, even though I'm often like creative directing, it's not all about me. I like to let people and ask people to like bring what their interests are to the the project. That's a really important part of collaboration, I think, is like saying, okay, you just do this. However, you know, go wild, do what inspires you. Um, and yeah, when that works out, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's always the best seeing new ideas or fresh mm -hmm. perspectives. Yep. Like I always like to say, I, I always find those very interesting. I One of my favorite parts of Game Jams is when we have... Um, people new to games or people mm -hmm. who have never been to game jams their ideas are always so fascinating it's like because like as someone who grew up playing games their whole life i am i'm kind of automatically boxed in uh -huh. like because i because you've seen all that stuff so your first ideas will always kind of be inspired by other games uh -huh. but someone who's never really been grown up with games they'll just come up with a, a unique perspective and you're like why isn't there a game about that yeah it's, it's so cool you know? i know yeah. i totally agree with that and i've you know it is really important to remember like for people like us who grew up with games like yeah we did that but there's so many people who like don't play games at all um and i love that you've had the chance to hear some of those ideas i think it's it's a good experience um one thing that i recommend to game designers actually is if you're working on like first person games, for example, or really probably any game, but for first person games is my example, get someone who's never played a first person game to play one while you watch and see how they use the camera. Like, it's really, <laughs> really interesting. I find that usually people will like try to, you know, press both joysticks if they're on a controller or whatever, and just like, end up pointing straight up at the ceiling. Like, it's interesting yeah, to yeah. see how difficult it is and how, like, you know, as people who grew up playing those games, yeah, we've internalized it, but a completely new player, like, you need to teach them those controls. Like, there are certain things we take for granted that people <laughs> who don't know games need help that's with. True. So it's fascinating so to think about. This is a bit of a hot take, but it's, it's something which I always disagreed with when it comes to Zelda, where a lot of games journalists at the time were like and this was um skyward sword era they were like i'm sick and tired of doing four hours of a tutorial i've played you know 10 zelda games already like why do we need this and i'm, I'm and i get it i get it i totally totally understand yeah. <laughs> but every there's a chance that every game is going to be someone's first game yeah and i do feel like by removing the tutorial elements or um, I guess I'm getting I'm, I'm, I'm making two arguments there should be a way to tutorialize using level design and game design without making it feel like it's a boring tutorial for someone who's played games many times I think Portal 1 is a very good example of doing that in my opinion mm -hmm. perfectly which like the first I don't know 
if you're slow at the game like me. First hour of that game is just straight up a tutorial. Mm-hmm. For, first of all, people who are new to gaming, new to Portal, and just new to the whole thing, right? But it still feels like um, the real game. It doesn't yeah. feel like a tutorial. So I think that's super interesting. Whereas something like Breath of the Wild, I feel, it's just like, hey man, we know you've played Zelda before. Go. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think there's you're kind of missing something there, I feel. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, I think that, yeah, the best games teach their mechanics through game or level design. And I think Portal, you're right, that is such a good example. I also often think of, like, those old Mario games are really good at it, like the really old 2D ones, because they didn't have any, like, tech... They didn't use text tutorials in those games. Like, it's just putting you in situations where if you don't do the mechanic right, like the jump, you'll die. So you just kind of have to like keep trying it until it works. And they use really simple versions of that at the very start. And then they ramp up the difficulty to like teach it to you similar to Portal. So yeah, I think a lot of the most memorable games um, do that. Like you said, they don't tell you what to do. They show you, they like get you to do it yourself. And that is like a way, I think for most people, it's easier to internalize things when you're like actually doing it yourself as opposed to being told it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I, I fully agree. I think even like uh, Doom, mm-hmm. uh, the first Doom was also pretty good at it because it just starts, it's just like, yeah. oh. <laughs> but like it, it, it uh, gates you in certain ways yep. and to learn stuff and some, I find dying, or ch- I find challenge frustrating, uh, but I enjoyed and got good at games like um, Super Meat Boy or mm-hmm. crap. What is that? Uh, what is that platformer about anxiety that came out recently? Was it? I haven't played it, but is that Celeste? Yes, Celeste. Yeah, yeah okay. So those games are pretty hard, uh-huh. but I'm good at them, or I enjoy them, and I'm not frustrated by them because I feel like dying doesn't feel extremely punishing it's like you're dead but you're stuck you're still close to where you died uh-huh. and i feel like the first level of doom and like the first level of mario 1 1 like you die but you you're learning quickly and yeah then you figure out i guess the rules of mm-hmm. it's like a vertical slice i guess of yeah most of the game in that one spot I and mean, then that's that's your tutorial you're good to go I, I wish more games would do that yeah it, it's it's really good smart design Okay, so I guess we can pivot to um, uh, content creation. What made you decide sure. to st- um, stream, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so for me, yeah, so I stream on Twitch at Nina Marie. Um, I am lucky to be a Twitch partner these days, which means a lot of things. But the important one is like I get paid, you know, people subscribe to my channel and it's what helps me pay the bills. Um, so I love Twitch. I love that it's, you know, if you don't know what Twitch is and you're listening to this, it's basically a a live streaming platform where I'm on camera, I'm in like a little box and then behind me is the game I'm playing and people will watch me play the game and I'll talk to them. There's a chat and I respond to what people are saying and they'll like ask me questions about what I'm playing or whatever. Um, so it's like a social space. Um, and yeah, I started streaming on Twitch, gosh, many years ago, probably 20, I don't know, 2015, 2016. I actually don't remember. It's been a while, but I was just doing it for fun with my friends back then. Like, you know, I started streaming to be like, hey, like my friend, it was when I moved to Portland, I think, Portland, Oregon. And I had a lot of, I had moved from New York City and I was like, I'll stream and like, we can hang out and, you know, talk in my chat, even though we're not near each other anymore. Um, So I was really doing it as a social thing at first. And then at that point I was already making games so I think I like started tweeting that I was streaming and people who were interested in my games work would come by and like say hi or ask me about game development um and I enjoyed those conversations so I kept I kept streaming and eventually I got more serious about it and I started developing like a schedule where I would stream like once or twice a week um and people like who weren't my in real life friends would show up just to like watch me stream who like were fans of my channel um 
And I thought that was cool. And then later, uh, I got into Overwatch, <laughs> which was actually my first, like, first person. Yeah, yeah. It was my first, like, online shooter game that I ever really played. And, you know, I got into it because I just wanted to try that kind of thing. But it became a huge part of my channel, and I would run these games that the chat could, like, come participate in. Like, uh, in Overwatch, it would be, like, a custom game, custom lobby. So I would be streaming and playing with the people in my chat, and I did that every week, and that's really how I, like, built the community initially, because um, I enjoyed doing that. And then, yeah, I got partnered, and... Um, now I stream four times a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I stream mostly, like... Uh, actually, like, right now I'm streaming, like, Dark Souls and Tomb Raider. I like to stream games that are kind of classics that I never got to try initially, because I learn yeah. a lot from them as a game designer. So I kind of, like, started doing it as, like, a social thing with Overwatch and, like, playing with friends. But now I focus more on it being, like, a way for me to keep up with, like all these old games that I missed. Because growing up, I only really played like JRPGs and like N64 and PS1. Like there's a lot of games that I that are classics that I never played. So I play them on stream and I use my stream as a space to connect with people who play my games and I get to know them and like know what they're interested in, which helps me work on stuff that I think, you know, might appeal to them. So I both use it as a way to like learn as a designer from games, but I also have used it as a way to like engage with people who play my games because I think as a game designer that's really helpful because my taste in games is maybe very different from yours or someone in my chats and I like to know you know what everyone is into and what works for them and I, I love being able to literally just ask them or like show them a game and be like what do you think of this um so yeah I all of that is good and then also sorry one last thing such a long answer uh <laughs> At some point along that journey, I realized that, you know, I wanted to leave my kind of day job situation and work on games truly independently, like not working for a company. And I had built my channel up enough on as like sort of a side gig that I was able to pay the bills with it. So that helped me transition into being fully independent. Um, so it was just like sort of a an awesome combination of things. And yeah, that's yeah. why I stream. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. Well, I have two questions. First of all, who's your Overwatch main? <laughs> and I will judge your answer. Got it, got uh, it. <laughs> I think... Yeah, and secondly, what yeah, yeah. Uh, classic games like that you missed, mm -hmm. have you played that you went, wow, this... Like, that's first, like, that you, like, you get why, like, it has such a rabid fan base, and which classic game have you played and you're like nah this this is an absolute miss guys <laughs> uh let's see okay for overwatch main i originally because it was my first like fps game i got really into mercy because you know she when you click like it kind of targets the nearest person so that was yeah. a good way for me to learn and then later i played so much Widowmaker. i got really like <laughs> I, w I was going through a lot in my personal life and I needed something to like focus on. <laughs> so I would do Widowmaker like custom games and just practice like shooting, like practice mm -hmm. getting headshots. And I would practice for like hours and I got pretty Jeez. good at it. Um, and I was like really, I loved playing Widowmaker. I thought like it was very, she's a very demanding character and very fun to play. And for someone who like needed something to do to get my mind off things, I like got super into her. <laughs> so yeah, it's my, <laughs> the journey of my mains. Um, I have I have a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts? Did you get into Overwatch pretty soon after release? Or? No, it was later actually. Mm -hmm. Later. Oh, okay. So my question won't be valid because I wanted to ask you what you thought of Mercy, like OG Mercy. That's original. Like whole team resurrection. Oh, I did play that actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played like right at the tail end of that. So, okay. what are your thoughts between that mercy <laughs> and this mercy? I think I actually really liked the original version of Mercy. That like playing her was so weird and different from the other characters, where it was almost like a stealth game, <laughs> where to, like yeah, it was a different game. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Exactly. You would have to like hide. And actually, as a level designer, it was interesting because I'd have to really get to know the level and know like where would be safe. And it 
Old Mercy encouraged you to think about the spaces really differently. Whereas I feel like now she's a little bit, mm, how do I say it? She's very frontline, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. And it's more like, oh, what's the word? Like instant gratification versus careful planning. And then like the excitement of a success, like well executed. It's a very, it's a different pace to the character. Um, and I think both can be interesting, but I did like that old version where it was like hide and seek. <laughs> <laughs> so did I. I. I really did like that old version because I'm not very good at FPSs. I played Team Fortress 2. Oh, cool. So I obviously transitioned to Overwatch because it's kind of one-to-one. And I played, I don't know if you played Team Fortress 2, Engineer, the guy who makes like, uh-huh. turrets and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've played it basically. once, so I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A little. <laughs> yeah, so I, I my main is Torbjorn. And like oh, you cool. said, I don't really think of... I, don't, I think of the spaces... Because I, I want to know where to place my turrets in certain areas and certain scenarios. And it, it, now that you've said it, it, it's kind of clicked. It's like, I need to know the map. I need to know. Mm-hmm. I need to kind of trick people to move yeah, into yeah. spaces <laughs> so that my turret can have the most like effect and stuff like that. Yeah, so, yeah totally. Yeah, Overwatch is a very, very good game. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of okay. fun playing it. Um, I fell off yeah. at some point just because I think I burnt myself out on it. And that's when I transitioned my channel into more of like typical variety streaming where I like, you know, play through single player games and just pick whatever I'm in the mood for. I do do full playthroughs though, where like if I play a game, I'll finish it. Um, And that's just my approach. So to answer your other question, the best like class, the best game that I missed that I'd always wanted to play that I played because I stream is a game called Chulip, (laughs) which before I go on, do you know about Chulip? I have never heard okay, of it. Okay, great. So that's C-H-U-L-I-P? Yes, exactly. Um, okay. So Chulip is a game. I forget when it came out. It's an older game. I think PS2. And um, it's a game made by devs in Japan. Um, devs who also worked on Rule of Rose, which is a pretty famous cult classic horror game. Um, Chulip's not horror... <laughs> like that though it's, it's funny that it's the same designer um but yeah tulip it's a game where you are playing as a kid who's new to town um he's just moved there with um his dad a single parent and being the new kid in town everyone's very skeptical of him or of you like the player character and you're kind of trying to like win the affection or win the favor of the town but also there's a cute girl that you like and you want to like kind of win her over um and it's all about your relationship to the town your relationship to her and you go around and the way that you do that is by convincing people to kiss you (laughs) (laughs) um So you'll like, for example, um, I'm trying to think of like one of the like quests. It's almost like, okay, think of it as a game that takes place in a whole town and there's lots of NPCs in the town and they each have like sort of a quest. And if you complete the quest, you get a kiss. Um, But it's not like you don't have a quest tracker or anything. It's really interesting because it's kind of like, it's just really weird kind of obscure puzzles where you just have to do the right thing for people. They'll like kind of tell you what you want, what they want sometimes more clearly, sometimes less clearly. And you just sort of have to figure it out. It's almost like an old school adventure game um, where the puzzles are really obscure and happen very organically in the environment. Um, It doesn't have like traditional kind of like mini games or like mechanics really at all. Um, It's very experimental, I would say. And like, I'm trying to think of a good example of one of them. There's one, one of the most memorable ones is there's a graveyard in the town and if you show up the game has a clock that's always ticking if you show up at the graveyard at the right time of night and it's like a short window there's this like cute zombie girl that appears (laughs) and the quest with her is to meet with her three times for tea and so you have tea with her three times and it like leads to the situation and she gives you a kiss and so you complete her her narrative um so it's got like really weird stuff like that. And then also you do a quest for like the guy who runs the train 
and you can like get a kiss from him. And there's also this whole subplot about like, kind of like Tulip is almost this, I don't know if it's a satirical game. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's this game about kissing, but also about really important like social issues. So there's a factory <laughs> in the town and you do these like kind of quests where you learn about like the state of the factory and like how the workers are feeling about being there. And it ends up being kind of like pro workers rights. Um, yeah. And, but also it's like about love and like relating to the town and about your family relationship. It's, a magical, weird, obscure, strange game. And it's like, I streamed it and I it was the most memorable experience on stream for me ever. <laughs> I, I have to try this you now, have to. it sounds so... It's so good. I'm surprised I've never heard of it, like it's, it's crazy. I had a friend in New York who was really, he was very knowledgeable about these like older Japanese games and he's the one who told me about it. Um, but the thing is, is that it's hard to play. Like the only way I could play it is because I have a PS3 and on PS3's PSN, you can buy it through their like online collection. Because getting a physical copy is like a couple hundred dollars. It's not cheap. Yeah, it's one of those. Yeah, yeah. So I played it by buying it for like, I think 12 bucks on PSN, but it's like only PS3 for some reason. Um, so I will say that it's like hard to get a hold of, but if you can, or like watch a playthrough or something. I think it's a classic and I think it's something that like every game designer should play. You'll learn so much from it. It's truly yeah. fascinating. It really does sound fascinating. I have to I have to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> I love Tulip. Um yeah. and then I guess your other question was the worst one. I don't Gosh, I always, I'm like ever the optimist. I try to find like the best in anything I play. So like I say, even if I'm not having fun in a game, I'm learning from that because if I'm not having fun, I try to think about why. So yeah, I guess a recent example, which I will, I'll preface this by saying this is the newest, the like re-release of Fatal Frame Maiden of Blackwater, which before I say more, I am like probably <laughs> one of the biggest Fatal Frame fans, fans. I think one through three of Fatal Frame, the first three games, especially the third, are like truly masterpieces. I think three is like top five games ever for me. But Maiden of Blackwater uh, is sort of, it's still in the same world and story, but it's a very different game. And the last boss fight of that game is super finicky where like, it's kind of like you just have to be in the right place at the right time to finish it. And it, I just found it really hard to figure out <laughs> to the point, which I've never done this before in a game. I always finish games, but I actually found it so frustrating that I just got mad and pulled up YouTube and watched the ending and quit. <laughs> That's the only time I've ever given up on a game on stream. Um, and it was because I just thought the boss fight was designed in an unfair way. And I was like, I can't, I won't do this i won't say exactly how because it's a spoiler but uh yeah yeah if you play fatal frame play the first three just don't even bother <laughs> with this one or play it like with a critical eye and try to learn from it and know that it's to gonna be a little rough actually the first part of the game's fine but the ending is it's tough <laughs> yeah no i i fully get what you mean when i <laughs> When there's something that feels really unfair, yeah, I, I really dislike it. This was me with, I'm one of the few like defenders of Final Fantasy 13. I I like that game. I think it's, I think it's okay. I think it's fine. I, I actually I like yeah, the characters. Yeah. But the final boss. So like all Final Fantasy games have got this spell, but with this final boss in 13, it is just so unfairly used, and it's like. It's systemic. It's not even random. Like if it was yeah, random, yeah. I'd be like, okay, I get why this is happening. He casts doom on you no. at a certain critical moment. <laughs> so basically, like, there's a timer on him. Like when you uh -huh. get him to a certain HP level, he casts doom on you automatically, no right. matter what you do. And I tried this many times, and I'm like, that's just. Oh, 
I found that so frustrating. And the things that Doom exists in almost all the Final Fantasy yeah. games, but it, it's never been used like that before. Uh-huh. And that was just so frustrating to me. It took me, I literally put the game on hold for like a year and then I got back to it. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I beat the boss, but that was so frustrating. That's a tough thing as a game designer, right? Like, sometimes you want to put in stuff like that where it makes the player's life a little harder because you maybe want to get that emotion out of them for some specific reason. But, like, it's such a fine line to walk, right? Because you have to be careful. You don't want to, like, make someone so mad they give up. You want them to, like, feel the emotion but keep playing. So it's, like, yeah, it's an interesting story because that can really be a hit or miss for people, right? And it's it's a, an area of game design that you have to be really careful about. <laughs> very, very much so. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if it comes down to, like, when you're working on a game, you can... You either get so good at your own game because you're making it or you're like too close to it that there are certain things you put in that like seem simple or easy to you, but that's because you know the system so well. Um, And sometimes designers forget to like take a step back and like see how someone who has no ideas about it responds to that feature. That's why playtesting is so important. I mean, I'm sure XCOM's playtested, but like uh, just as like a general thing, I've noticed like you know, with some indie designers and stuff, you can like get so deep into working on your own game that you forget to play test it. And then you make something so freaking hard for anyone because like you forget to show someone. I think that's like a common mistake to make. Um, but yeah, really like play testing throughout development can help you avoid those situations um, to give you that like, yeah, fresh perspective. <laughs> Yep, I, I learned that through the game jams over the years. Playtesting yeah. and prototyping. Mm-hmm, totally. Always prototype, always playtest. <laughs> <laughs> Can never go wrong doing those things as early as possible. Yep, as well. totally. Um, yeah. Well, that's all the questions I had. Unless there's anything else that you, I guess, wanted to add. Cool. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have anything else to add. I just, you know, really enjoyed talking with you. I think the architecture stuff is like super fascinating and I love to think about the intersection of that with digital level design um and I really enjoyed talking about like some of the paper prototyping stuff um I think paper mapping is like such a powerful tool in learning how to be a level designer um you know if you're working on a game where that applies uh so yeah like good stuff I'm really glad we talked um it's been interesting hearing your stories as well Thanks very much. It's been very interesting for me for me as well. Um, I'm obviously a big fan of your game. Oh, I'm thank you. Like telling people like play this game, play this game. It's, it's oh, super thanks. interesting. I appreciate it. So, yeah. Um, where can people? I guess you can plug like where can people find you? Where can people watch you and all that stuff? Sure. Um, so I mentioned my Twitch stream a lot, which uh, is Nina Marie N I N A M A R I E is my Twitch handle. And I mentioned it before, but I stream Monday, Tuesdays, and uh, Thursday, Fridays. Um, And yeah, I keep really consistent with that schedule um, because I am doing that while also working on games with Jake um, and freelancing and stuff. So I'm sort of like a weird hybrid person. I don't have anything like announced publicly right now that I'm working on. I just have a lot of things in the pipeline. Um, but Jake and I are working on a horror game that will come out eventually. <laughs> that's sort of about, it's a horror game that's about um, kind of like my relationship with my mom and body image stuff. And it's like set in a department store, like if you know, like a JCPenney or like a Marshalls or something. I don't know if you have those stores where you are, but. We have similar stuff. Okay. Yeah. Like Woolworths. Or yeah, 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 exactly. Like Woolworths. Um, And it's set in that kind of a space and there will be scary mannequins and stuff. So that's like what I'm working on right now for personal work. Um, I just don't have like any dates announced for it. But yeah, that stuff, my Twitch stream on Twitter. I am Persicom Nina, which is P-E-R-S-O-C-O-M Nina, N-I-N-A. Is that a a chill between? Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you know. (laughs) Absolutely. I have a Chobits tattoo. I'm like obsessed with Chobits uh, from childhood. Because <laughs> uh, like it's the perfect manga or anime for like exploring the relationship between like people and technology. I just I grew up loving that kind of sci-fi stuff. So yeah, it is a Chobits reference. <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, that's my Twitter and my website is Nina says dot. So N I N A S A Y S dot S O. And that's where you can find like all my, my older games and stuff. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It was very enlightening and, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to your games and your streams and hopefully maybe we can chat again sometime. Awesome. Yeah, I'll be in touch for sure. I would be happy to catch up anytime. It's been lovely chatting. 